Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I wonder if I could get you to help me with something this morning. Would you be willing to stand where you are, all over the congregation? Would you be willing to rise to your feet and participate with me in a brief survey, just four questions long? So here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to read a statement to you. If you agree with that statement, if your answer is yes, then you stay standing. If you disagree with the statement, if your answer is no, then you can be seated. That's pretty simple, isn't it? So yes is standing, no is seated. Now, the questions will have to do with work. So for those of you who work outside of the home, think of your office, the hospital, school, wherever the case might be. For those of you whose focus is at home, think of the chores, the duties, and the details that have to be managed there. All right, so I think we're ready, right? Yes is standing, no is seated. Number one, this is the first statement. When the sun set yesterday, there were still items left on your list of things that were supposed to have been done last week, either a mental list or an actual list. There were still things on the list. Yes, stay standing. No, I had them all done. Please be seated. Okay, we only resent you a little bit. All right, number two. For there to be items left on the to-do list on a Friday is a common occurrence. In other words, there are still things to do a lot of my Fridays. If you say yes to that, stay standing. If you say no, most Fridays I'm done with everything, then you can sit down. Okay, a few more, not too many. Number three, between sundown Friday and sundown Saturday, I think at times about what's on that list. Between sundown Friday and sundown Saturday, I think at times about what's on that list. Yes, stay up. No, sit down. There are a lot of people still standing. Okay, number four. I would like just for once by Friday afternoon to be done with everything I had to do that week. I would like that just once. Yes, standing. No, seated. Man, there are a lot of people standing up, and I'm one of them. All right, thank you very much. I appreciate your help. So that gives us a bit of a feel for where we are here among our church family at Loma Linda University Church. That gives us a realization that there is always one more task to do, always one more errand to run, always one more class for which we need to study, always one more item on the to-do list. How in the world are we supposed to relax? In fact, I got to thinking about that this week and remembered a song from years ago. Those of you who on occasion listen to country and western music may remember this song. It went to the top of the country charts, song number one on the charts in September of 1992. That's a few years ago. 
It was a song that was sung by a country group named Alabama. Here are some of the lyrics of that song. I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and run until life's no fun. All I really need to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. <laughs> now, I got to wondering, was that recorded in 92 or was that last week? <laughs> or has it just stayed the same year after year after year? Always rushing, always hurrying, never done. And then in the midst of that kind of a life, we come to church, and we realize in the 10 that we're studying, we're at number four. Number four, which is the word rest. The concept is drawn from the Hebrew word Shabbat. The Hebrew word Shabbat literally means stop. So in the middle of that verse, I'm in a hurry to get things done. Stop. <laughs> stop. And we have to ask ourselves, what in the world, how in the world is that even possible? So we turn to number four, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20, page 111 in your pew Bibles. Now these are words that are very familiar to those who have had a lifetime or an upbringing or a period of time in Seventh-day Adventism. For others, they may, may be not as familiar. But before we read again words that may be familiar to you, let me just point out that this commandment really has two segments to it. The first segment is what we are to do. The second segment is why we are to do it. Two segments. So let's begin. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Two segments, two sections to the commandment. The first one is what we are to do. And what we are to do is captured by simply saying we are to rest. Again, I'm going to read that first part. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, daughter, male, female, servant, animals, any foreigner residing in your towns. So if we ask, what exactly is it, what precisely is it that this command directs us to do? The answer simply is, it directs us to rest. I want to read to you the words of the writer Gordon MacDonald, writing quite some years ago now. It was in a book called Ordering Your Private World. He was writing to us moderns who at times not only have outwardly chaotic lives, but have inwardly chaotic lives. And he's writing to people who are saying, I'm tired of that. I want some kind of order in my private world. He had an entire section there on the concept of Sabbath. It was in that section that he wrote this. We do not rest because our work is done. We rest because God commanded it. 
and created us to have a need for it. So for all of us who were still standing at the end of the four statements, it says we don't rest because our work is done, but because God commanded it, created us with a need for it. A restless work style produces a restless person. Work that goes on month after month without a genuine pause to inquire of its meaning and purpose may swell the bank account and enhance the professional reputation, but it will drain the private world of vitality and joy. How important it is to regularly close loops on our activity. What are we to do? The commandment says we are to rest. Now, I'd like to ask you to put yourself in the sandals of those Israelites, the Hebrew people. You stand there in their sandals on the sands of the Sinai Peninsula looking up at the mountain, and you are taking in the realities of what it is that God is directing will unfold in this covenant relationship with Him. Remember who you are. You are essentially escaped slaves. You have finally been able to exit Egypt. All of your life has been dominated by work. That's how you have defined yourself. You work all the time. When the master commands, you act. You do what the master says, when the master says, how the master says, for as long as the master wants. That's the reality of your life, not only of your life, but of your parents' lives, of your grandparents' lives, and so on back 400 years. Our lives, our world is dominated by work. And then you stand at Sinai, and you hear God say, in this covenant relationship we are forming, your life will no longer be defined by ceaseless toil. You will rest. In fact, you will rest every seven days. You will rest. As I pondered that this last week, I wondered, what must that have sounded like as it fell on the ears of people in a slave mindset. To say to them, no more will your life be dominated by endless labor. There must have been people saying, what did he say? We get to rest every seven days, every week? That just goes on in, in, in perpetuity? Can you imagine the joy that would have filled the hearts of those told you will get to rest. But it wasn't just them. It didn't stop there. You heard the commandment. You nor your son or your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, your cattle, not even the stranger within your gates. You understand what God was saying to them? God was saying to them, I will not allow my covenant people to do to others what the Egyptians did to you. So it's not only you that I'm giving freedom for rest, not just you, but everyone that you have anything to do with. Your kids get to rest. Your neighbors get to rest. The people who are staying at your house get to rest. Your very animals get a break. 
In fact, just three chapters later, over in Exodus 23, Moses enlarges on this, quoting God, Exodus 23, verse 12. 23, verse 12. In saying this, Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the slave born in your household and the foreigner among you as well may be refreshed. Everybody gets a chance to stop. Nobody's life should be dominated, defined by endless work. That's the way it is in God's covenant relationship with His people. I'd like to read you the words of Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is the one whom we can thank for his paraphrase of Scripture entitled, The Message. Some of the most beautiful Sabbath theology I have read, I have actually read from the pen of Eugene Peterson. Listen to what he says about these realities. He writes, Unsabbathed, that's a word I'm not familiar with, a new one to me. Unsabbathed, our work becomes the entire context in which we define our lives. Remember ancient Egypt? The entire context. We lose God consciousness, God awareness, signing, sightings of resurrection. We lose the capacity to sing, this is my father's world, and end up chirping little self-centered ditties about what we are doing and feeling. This is a most difficult command to keep, a most difficult practice to cultivate. It is one of the most abused and distorted practices of the Christian life. Many through the centuries have suffered much under oppressive Sabbath regimens. And more than a few of us have been among the oppressors. It is difficult to assemble a congregation of Christians today that does not number in its company both oppressed and oppressors. John gives us two accounts of Jesus' Sabbath healings, chapters 5 and 9, that serve as serious warnings against glib or legalistic or oppressive Sabbath practices. Jesus spent a good deal of his time at odds with people who had wrong ideas about keeping Sabbath. But I don't see any way out of it. If we are going to live appropriately in the creation, we must keep the Sabbath. We must stop running around long enough to see what he has done and is doing. We must shut up long enough to hear what he has said and is saying. All our ancestors agree that without silence and stillness, there is no spirituality, no God-attentive, God-responsive life. Take note of what Peterson says. If we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, there's no way around Sabbath. It's a central reality for the people of God. Now, I know, I understand. As we read Peterson's words and we read about oppressive Sabbath regimes, someone here, a few of us here, maybe a lot of us here, went back to earlier years in an Adventism that was often dominated by legalism. And we immediately understood what he was saying. And it's the reason we have 
at times, an uncomfortable relationship with Sabbath. I can remember that. Remember having friends over from church for Sabbath lunch, all sitting at the table enjoying the conversation. As soon as we could, we kids would finish eating, and out we would head out the door, out to the backyard. And just as we were heading out the door, mom or dad or one of the other moms or dads would say, have a nice time, but remember, it's Sabbath. As a kid, I'm wondering, what does that mean? Run half as fast? Swing half as high? Laugh half as loud? What, what, what exactly does that mean? I wasn't certain, but I was pretty sure it wasn't good. Remember, it's Sabbath. We had a small pool in our backyard when we lived in Guadalajara, Mexico. We had a large group over for a potluck one Sabbath, and all the kids were out right around that little pool, not a big pool, little pool, and just getting close to the edge. And finally, sure enough, one of them fell in. <laughs> fell in, and one of the parents standing by said, he's the only one who had the courage to do what everybody else wanted to do. So I understand that kind of experience. Maybe that was why I was drawn into the story my friend John Brunt tells in his beautiful little volume, A Day for Healing. He tells about a Sabbath morning at his house when their kids were younger and they're eating breakfast, getting ready to go to church, and his daughter, looking rather pensive, a bit of a faraway look in her eye, says, I think there should be a rule against chewing gum on Sabbath. Well, John was curious about that, and so he said, really? Yeah, I think we should have that rule. Why should we have a rule against chewing gum on Sabbath? Again, she was thoughtful. And finally she said, I don't know, but I think it would make a good rule. <laughs> <laughs> and I read that, and I thought, that's where many found themselves, dominated by the things we can't do. In fact, I remember another example. I remember when I was in college, Often on Sabbath afternoons, we students would gravitate toward one of the homes in the community. One of our classmates would live in the village rather than in the dorm, and they'd have a big house, and the parents would welcome us in, feed us, and we would sit down and sit around Sabbath afternoon having chew the fat sessions. I can remember one of the questions that we talked about. We debated. All of us young, single college students was, is it okay for married couples... <clears throat> to have sexual intimacy on the Sabbath, on Friday night. And we debated this, talked about it. Would that be okay? Would that be sin? Somebody stopped me after first service and said, Alberta Mazat, a name familiar to many of you, was asked that very same question in a question and answer session. Would it be sin for a couple, a married couple, to have sexual relations on Friday evening? And Dr. Mazat said, I was told, well, if it is sin, God took a real risk by creating humanity on the Friday. <laughs> Let's just say that. <clears throat> and so we debated that. We argued that. What is, is the Sabbath? Does it supersede that? Only for me to discover. Once I began to study some of these things a bit more seriously in seminary education and so forth, I discovered that the rabbis, the rabbis who were deeply and intensely protective of the Sabbath, including the rabbis at the time of Jesus who wanted to defend it from any incursions that were illegitimate, said, absolutely, a husband and a wife not only can, but should, must 
Because when God speaks about the day being a delight, said the rabbis, that's what he's talking about. That's it. And furthermore, they said, remember, in a male-dominated world, furthermore, they said, that on Friday night, the wife had the right, one night of the week, to look at him and say, <clears throat> all right, buddy, <laughs> it's Sabbath. <laughs> I just thought you'd want to know that. <laughs> I want you to be good little Adventists. Amen. Sabbath. That's what the rabbis said. So I understand places we have been as we read Peterson's words about oppressive Sabbath regimens. But when you come to Scripture, when you come to the thinking of those who profoundly valued Sabbath, what you come to is a glorious experience of a day of rest when the responsibility that I have is off my plate where it doesn't even matter whether or not the to-do list was done. I'm done for these 24 hours. In a period of time where there is always something more to do, I can actually release that and rest in the grace of God. Now there's something interesting that I've noticed in the recent maybe two decades, two and a half decades. I've been watching this. And what I've seen is an increasing interest in Sabbath. It's happening all over the writing of people in the larger Christian world. I sat down this week and went through book after book after book of people dealing with the concept of Sabbath. It's not always with the day, though even in some occasions that is included, but with the concept of Sabbath. And we even find it beginning to make its appearance in secular literature. Sabbath. The way I explain that, not wholly, but at least partially, is that in our 24-7, 365 day of the year world where nothing ever stops, there has finally seeped into the human makeup a realization, we just can't do this without stopping. And so some of the most beautiful writing about the theology of Sabbath is coming from pens that are not Seventh-day Adventists. Now, here's what deeply concerns me. At the very time that there's a surging interest in Sabbath in both the secular and the Christian world around us, do you know what's happening to us? We are in some quarters in danger of losing the Sabbath because it has blended into all the rest of the week. And some would have a very difficult time identifying how it's any different from any other day. Well, I go to church. Other than that, now I understand. There are certain ways I observe Sabbath differently than what I grew up with because that was dominated by a certain kind of legalism. But let me put it to you this way. There's a ditch on either side of the road. If on the one hand, your Sabbath observance is dominated by the list of things that you don't do, you have veered off the road and gone into one ditch. But on the other hand, if your Sabbath is a day where it's hard to identify anything any different from any other day, you have veered off the road into the other ditch. 
But somewhere in the middle, in the balanced area, in the biblical area, we have this day where God says, stop, sit down, lie down, take a nap, take a rest, take a load off, revel in the joys of creation, enjoy the realities of my love, Connect on, over long, leisurely lunches with family and friends and just rest. I don't know all of the specific details. I'm not going to give you a list. I think the Spirit of God can do that. I don't know all of the intricate ways that we can do that in the context of living right next door to a medical center that has to be 24-7, 365. Tremendous burden and tremendous realities. There's sorting through that needs to happen. Jesus himself says it is good to do well on the Sabbath. But what I do know is this. When we pause to look at this commandment, the first part of it tells us what to do. And the what to do is answered by simply saying, rest. Just rest. There's a second segment. Not only the first segment, what to do, but the second segment that says why we do it. Why we do it. Back to Exodus 20. This time the last verse again, verse 11, says this giving us the reason why. It says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This commandment, only one to begin with the word remember. Remember, because this is not the first time in the biblical narrative that we've come into contact with Sabbath. For that, we have to go all the way back to the dawn of the biblical story in the creation event. In a world that was perfect, in a world before it was ruptured by sin, in a world that spun pristine and pure from the Creator's hand, a world where all was gleaming and all was life. A world before there was a Jew or a Gentile, a Protestant or a Catholic, a Saturday or a Sunday. In that world, holy as it was, he says there comes a time to rest. Every seven days, to rest. That's why we do it, because God did it. Again, one more time, if you would. Second quote from Eugene Peterson, who writes about this this way. Sabbath is a deliberate act of interference, an interruption of our work each week, a decree of no work so that we are able to notice, to attend, to listen, to assimilate this comprehensive and majestic work of God, to orient our work in the work of God. When we remember the Sabbath and rest on it, we enter into and maintain the rhythm of creation. We keep time with God. Sabbath keeping preserves and honors time as God's gift of holy rest. It erects a weekly bastion against the commodification of time, against reducing time to money, reducing time to what we can get out of it, against leaving no time for God or beauty or anything that cannot be used or purchased. 
It is a defense against the hurry that desecrates time. I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and run until life's no fun. All I really need to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. And Peterson says, it is a defense against the hurry that desecrates time. That's Sabbath. He said that in keeping Sabbath, we keep time with God. We honor the rhythm of creation. So I want to ask, what is the rhythm of creation? To go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we find an answer very quickly. You will notice as you read through those chapters, particularly one in the first part of 2, that evening and morning were the first day, evening and morning were the second day, evening and morning were the third day, and so on through the first six days of creation. Evening and morning. In other words, every day began with night. In other words, our interaction in the work of God begins with rest. That's the rhythm of creation. We rest, God works, and then God awakens us to join Him in the work He is already doing. But our experience with God always begins with our rest and His work. We later join Him in what He does. That's the rhythm of creation. It's for that reason that Peterson can say that sleep, think about it this way, sleep, he says, is a spiritual discipline. Sleep. Because in order to be able to sleep and to sleep and to rest well, we, in essence, are saying, God... I know I am critical to the survival of this planet. I've got so many things on my to-do list. If I'm not there, the company will fall apart. I know I'm in control of all kinds of things. But the moment has come when I can't hold it anymore. I've got to sleep. So I'm leaving it in your hands. And God says, thanks. It's a spiritual discipline because it recognizes there come moments when I can do nothing but rest. And you know what? God still got it. He'll still handle it. That's the evening. In the morning when we awake, He will invite us in, draw us in to the work He is doing in the world, and we will have the joy of working alongside Him. Sabbath is the very same thing. That's why McDonald, in the first quote I read, said, Sabbath doesn't depend on whether or not we are done. We stop because God said stop. It doesn't matter if I've finished every single item off my checklist. Sabbath has arrived. It's time to step in, not only to sacred space, but to step into rest. I don't know what that will mean in each and every life here. Many of you are in health care, and patients need care. And in a sense, we should give them even greater care on Sabbath, because as John Brunt says in the book I quoted earlier, Sabbath is a day for healing. I don't know what it will mean in terms of the specific details and items that we will or won't participate in, and maybe some of them will be different. But what I do know is this. The reason 
The why of Sabbath observance is that God rested, and so do we. He calls us to follow in his footsteps. Have you ever paused to ponder how different our lives might be if we took that even more seriously? Every time I think about this, read about this, I remember an incident, and I've shared it a number of times with different people. I remember an incident that took place just back in the offices here at the church. It was a number of years ago in the, in the period of time when there were a lot of people literally from around the world beating a path to Loma Linda's doorstep. They were coming here because they had heard of this thing called the Blue Zones. And they were coming to try to find out what is the secret of longevity. They came and they filmed all over campus. They talked with people. They, they talked with scholars and researchers. What is it that's different? What's different about lifestyle and diet and all these other things? What is the secret? Quite a few of those who came also asked for permission to come to church. We'd like to film your service. We'd like to talk to one or two of your pastors. We have some questions for them as well. Thus it was that one day I sat down with one of the principal researchers who was researching and writing on this. I was a bit nervous because I wasn't sure exactly what he would ask and I didn't have answers to some of the scientific realities and was hoping that wouldn't be the expectation. I kind of stumbled right away, right out of the starting gate, trying to lighten the mood and then I thought, oh no, I hope he doesn't quote that. He said to me, why do you think Adventists live longer? And I said, well, they don't really. It just seems longer. <laughs> and then I said, oh, well, don't, 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 don't write that down, please. Don't, don't do that. I was just trying to be funny. Um, he was gracious, and he didn't. And the interview continued from there. And he wasn't interested in diet. He wasn't interested in research. Wasn't interested in exercise. A lot of those things I thought he might have asked about. There was passing reference. He was interested in Sabbath. And he kept probing me with questions about that. Till finally he said to me, so, so let me get this straight. You mean to tell me that every seven days, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, you don't mow your lawn, pay your bills, Shop for the groceries, do the laundry. I mean, is that what you're saying to me? I said, well, I don't presume to speak for every Adventist, but yeah, that, that, that's the idea. And he kind of sat back and got a bit of a faraway look in his eye, and he said to me, do you realize, do you realize how utterly different my life would be if I did that? because I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and run till life's no fun. All I really need to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. And God steps up. And to all of that, he says, Shabbat! Stop. No longer defined by ceaseless labor. In this covenantal relationship, we are here developing. You will have rest. You and every person you have anything to do with, even your animals, you will enjoy rest. Because that's what I do. So I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage 
to prayerfully and thoughtfully reconsider Sabbath. I'm not interested in your lists. What I am interested in is a sense of surrender to the work of God. Sabbath is evening. We rest. The morning will come when we join God in His work, but surrender to His rest. God did it in the creation. Israel did it as they came out of Egypt. Jesus did it when He walked the dusty pathways of this world. And now He invites us to do it. He invites us into a reviving, refreshing, renewing, reinvigorating, counter-cultural day called Sabbath. God of grace, thank you for every one of us who is tired, who is overwhelmed, who is worried about getting everything done. Thank you. Thank you that you do not want our lives defined by ceaseless labor. But thank you at an even deeper level that that rest, while it's physically very important, at a deeper level is emotionally and relationally important, and at the deepest level, our spirits and our souls can rest in your work. For that, you have our undying praise and our unending gratitude. In the name of Jesus. Amen.